Bless you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I, I want to say thank you for those that, um, I mean, this wasn't a church-wide announcement or anything, but we just grabbed some folks that we knew were um, regular intercessors and asked them to be here Monday um, and, and to be offering some prayer for our special district council that was here Monday. where We elected a, um, a new district superintendent, and I don't think they're here tonight, but uh, we want to offer our congratulations to Bob and Michelle Sandler, who are our new uh, South Carolina district superintendents. And um, uh, thank you for praying and uh, being, being uh, how did Terry Tackle used to say it? Praying on site with insight. So thank you for that. God bless you. Let's get, um, let's get right into the Life of Abraham number 13, final exam. Um, now, I call this final exam, but I think we've got one more lesson that we're going to have next Wednesday night. We're going to pull out about five or six principles of living like Abraham. Uh, it's not going to be about a story in Abraham's life, but it's going to be about uh, some things we observe from him. Now, neither is this story tonight the end of Abraham's story. If you're continuing to read through Genesis, you would read about the selection uh, of a bride for Isaac. You would read um, about Abraham, uh, you, you'd read about the death of, of Sarah, and then you would read about Abraham starting another family, if you can believe it. Just when you think uh, the miraculous has occurred, all it's going to, he starts another family which is uh, not a lot about it, but there's a few paragraphs about it. And uh, we read about that. We read about the death of Abraham and how his sons Ishmael and Isaac come together to bury him. Then at that point, <clears throat> the story of Isaac begins. And uh, we won't, uh, we're not moving from Abraham into Isaac. But I'm saying even though this is not the end of the story, this is the last major story that regards Abraham. Now, now Isaac and Rebekah is a big story and it's a big deal, but uh, I think we're going to reserve that story to the life of Isaac uh, when we get to that study. You say, when will that be? As soon as we get through with the study before Isaac, when we get through with that one, it, it'll be his turn. We're not sure when that'll be. Um, you say, well, you sound kind of like you've got ambitious plans. The only thing I want to do is cover every chapter of every book in the Bible before Jesus comes. So that's all I'm after. So we'll get to it sooner or later. Sometime later, yeah, might ought to hurry up. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, you remember we, we had the dedication, the consecration of, uh, of little Isaac, and then the dismissal of Hagar and Ishmael into the wilderness. And God, or excuse me, Abraham basically granted Hagar her freedom and freedom for her children in order for her and for little Ishmael to not have a claim on the uh, inheritance that would go to Isaac. Okay, we talked about the difficulties of that. But sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Now when he called him his only son, your only son whom you love, that had to bring up the tinge of pain that Abraham felt. You remember, depending on the version that you read four times, it's, it talks about Abraham's Abraham's distress over having to send Ishmael out. And now it's like God is saying, this is your only son you have now. So he's intensifying the setting. Go to the region of Moriah. And let me tell you this now, just in case I forget to do it at the end. Moriah, the region of Moriah is where Jerusalem is located. And the tradition is that on the rock, where the temple was built was the place where Abraham was ready to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. 
Okay, um, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. Now guys, I need to just say this to begin with. This story offends our sensibilities. We do not understand this. We cannot envision a, a setting where we would think of offering a child. Um, it, it, it's just, it's a different time. It's a different era. It's a different place in the revelation of God. It's just removed from where we are. But nonetheless, Abraham, accustomed to the idea of sacrifice, obeyed God. Uh, on the third day, and that's another thing that we've got to pay attention to. He had three days. This wasn't like just jerking a Band-Aid off and getting it over with. This was three days that this command was to be processed in his heart. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Now you might say, well, why, why did he leave his servants? There are some appointments that God ordains for you and not for everybody else. You see Jesus putting people out of the room on an occasion <coughs> when he was about to do something phenomenal. And uh, I, I, there, there are some things that just are between you and God. There are some things, <coughs> in fact, the earliest tradition of closing uh, the earliest commentary we have on the tradition of closing your eyes in prayer was to shut out everyone else. This was a connection between you and God. And um, there are times I think Jesus put people out of the room because he wanted to put unbelief out of the room. And there are other times I think it was just a moment that was sacred. The ones he put out weren't necessarily in unbelief, but this was a moment that was very, very private. And um, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there. We will worship. And then he says something that is weird until you understand the whole story. And we will come back to you. One Bible scholar said, well, what he meant is he would bring the dead body of his son back. No, that he was about to be sacrificed. There would be nobody to bring back. Something happened from the time Abraham began that journey till the time he got there, something over those three days happened in the life of Abraham that he was able to say, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. That's a smart daddy. Put it on your boy, let him carry it. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham has learned something we still don't know about. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. We're going to talk about this. God was not wondering what Abraham would do. We'll talk about what that phrase means in just a moment. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns he went over, took the ram, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide or Jehovah Jireh, as, as our English Bibles put it. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided, or um, Jehovah's provision shall be seen. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself. I'm not trying to keep interrupting here because I, I hate to interrupt myself. Because I usually, I usually want to hear what I'm about to say. But again, we talked about this a little bit in, in earlier lessons, I think twice. When you see, talking about the angel of the Lord, it usually, in, in the Old Testament, it's usually referring to God Himself. And the way you can tell is when the angel of the Lord begins to speak, one of two things happens. The angel of the Lord says, I will do so and so. And then you know it's the Lord appearing as an angel. Or he accepts worship. An angel will never accept worship because worship belongs to God. Um, and an angel doesn't say, I will do this. He would say, the Lord will do this. Like Gabriel spoke to Mary. But when the angel says, I will do this. You remember when Abraham was getting the promise uh, about, about this time next year, your wife Sarah will have a son. Remember, that was, the one he was talking with was one of those three men who appeared as angels. Two of them we know were angels because they went to the city of Sodom. The third one stayed behind and talked with Abraham. And that angel started saying, I will do this. I will keep my promise. Is anything, Sarah, too hard for the Lord? So, angel of the Lord is usually, and the context will tell you, but um, the angel of the Lord is usually God himself appearing to us in a form that we can comprehend. Okay, um, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, to really understand the full story of Abraham, you have to read Romans and you have to read Hebrews. But I knew if I put all those verses down, we would never get to the rest of the lesson. So I did want to put Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 down. This explains why Abraham told his servants that we will go there and worship and then we will return. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Now, he's received the promise that through his son, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here he is, uh, probably a junior high aged boy, and Abraham is about to kill him before he's ever had time to produce sons. It's a conflict. God said this will happen, but it can't happen if I obey God. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So verse 19, Abraham reasoned. That is a beautiful word. It means that Abraham collected the information, the seeming contradiction, and out of that a revelation emerged that was so beautiful and so powerful it was greater than anything he could have imagined before. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in a matter of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. What it's telling us is that probably on that three-day journey while Abraham is trying to process, this is what you said, but this is what you said. I know you spoke. And guys, whenever God seems to speak to you in ways you don't understand, don't ever doubt God. Doubt yourself. I mean, we may not hear well. We may not understand well. But I want to tell you, the problem is not with God. And sometimes he deliberately speaks in, in questions to get us to dig in deeper. I think that's the nature of prophetic mystery. Now, we've got to be careful we don't get stuck at the question marks. But during this three-day journey, he begins to, 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 to reason, and he puts the information together, and this is the revelation in his heart. God had never said this to him, not once. But Abraham said, I understand. 
God said he will do this. And the only way he can do this is for my son to live. Yet God just told me to take his life. Therefore, there is one conclusion left. God will raise him from the dead. So he goes from this kind of faith to this kind of faith, even though he has nothing to compare it to. That's the nature of being a child of Abraham. Your deepest, darkest questions lead you to a greater revelation if you'll just spend time with God. Let him work it out. Now, here's the central truth. God will be faithful to complete this marvelous work he has begun in each of his children. I brought this up, I think it was last week. We, we should never, ever, and I'm preaching to me as much as anybody, we should never take the approach, well, maybe God's not going to do it, or maybe it's not going to happen. That should never enter our thinking. When God gives us the promise, with joyful anticipation, we await for the fulfillment, even though we may not see how it will come. Okay, now I want to talk to you about the, the sovereignty of God. Um, I, I want to talk to you about uh, this final exam that we're talking about. Um, I want to talk to you, as you see there in your outline, I want to talk to you a little bit about intimacy. All of these terms go together. Um, and, and I think we have to understand these terms to understand this chapter. In fact, I don't, I don't mean you need to understand these terms to be saved, but if you're going to have a victorious walk, you need to understand these terms. Here's the first one, the nature of the sovereign God. Um, let me say this, and I don't mean to be offensive to Calvinists or Arminians uh, here tonight. Uh, right now, um, evangelical Christianity, is there's a great schism where you're either a Calvinist or you're an, an Arminian. The, the, the fact is most folks didn't know they're either Calvinist or Arminian, but that's where your theology line, lines up. Um, the, the, um, both of them believe in the sovereignty of God, but their interpretation of the sovereignty of God is very, very different. Um, now you say, well, what, what do Calvinists believe? I, I'm giving you a, just a very brief 45-second definition when um, I had to, to take two semesters of definition of what it means to be Calvinist. Um, and I need to tell you, I'm not a Calvinist, but a Calvinist believes very strongly in the sovereignty of God. Now, Arminian will tell you we do too. We just don't believe that sovereignty is what a Calvinist says it is. They believe in the predestination of the church. So does an Arminian. But an Arminian says predestination is different than what the Calvinists say it is. They say that if you are saved and you're, you're part of the elect, you are predestined to be saved. And you can't come to the Lord. You can't get saved unless you're the one of the ones chosen to be saved. Extreme Calvinism says one, uh, everybody is either predestined for heaven or predestined for hell. And if you're predestined for hell you're not going to get to heaven. You're not going to accept the message. If you're predestined to heaven, you're going to accept it no matter what comes against you. And um, I want to say this with all due respect, and please don't ask me to meet after church to, to discuss this with you. But um, I, I believe that from, and there's, there are great people that are Calvinists. Archie Kendall is, is probably the most famous Calvinist I know. He's a, he's a hardcore Calvinist and, and he loves God with all of his heart. But I'm not a Calvinist and our church is not a Calvinist church. Uh, but um, where an Arminian, a church like ours would say, we believe in predestination. This is what we believe. We, well, let me back up. A Calvinist would say this. We believe that if you are chosen, it's because, I mean, if you're going to heaven, it's because you were chosen to go to heaven. You were predestined to go to heaven. You were predestined to accept the Lord. And a, and a, a strong five-point Calvinist will believe in double predestination. They'll say, if you get to heaven, it'll be because God decided you would go to heaven. And if you go to hell, it will also be because God decided you will go to hell. And you say, well, that's not fair. A Calvinist would say, well, it's not fair that God would save any of us. But at least he's saving the elect. And it's, it's much more complicated than that. And I went to two Calvinistic seminaries. So believe me, I understand, I understand the argument. I understand what I'm talking about. But that's predestination to a Calvinist. To an Arminian, we also believe in predestination. But we don't believe you're predestined 
to hell or predestined to heaven. We believe that everyone who accepts the Lord is predestined to heaven. And what we mean by that is that not in some cosmic sense you are, you're going to go to heaven whether you want to or not. But we believe that predestination is according to the foreknowledge of God. And what that means, that is, if, if Justin gives his heart to the Lord Jesus, it is predestined in heaven that Justin will get to heaven. God may have to drag him. God may have to, to carry him. He may go through the deepest valley and he may be, go through a period of rebellion. But if he really accepts Jesus, we believe that Justin is predestined to end up in heaven. The church is predestined to make it to heaven. Now that's what we believe. And I, I, you know, a Calvinist will say that the Arminians don't understand. And an Arminian will say that the Calvinists don't understand. And um, I can count on one hand the number of, I better stop. I better not, I better not, better not go there. But the, 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 the fighting point is the sovereignty of God. Because if you are in one camp, uh, you believe that the sovereignty of God means this. Everything that happens from the flapping of a butterfly's wings off the coast of Africa, everything that happens is the result of God's will being done. And they say it's a mystery. You can't understand why God's will would allow some things and why God's will would demand some things. Whereas the other end, the uh, Arminian end of the spectrum says we believe in God's sovereignty as well. But we don't believe it is fatalism. We believe that God is sovereign and he has the ability that is a mystery to us to make everything work together for good even when someone acts outside of his will. We do not believe that God's sovereignty says everything that happens is God's will. We believe that God is so sovereign and so powerful that everything that happens, even if it's against his will, will be eventually conformed to work his will and to do the purposes of his will. Now, I know I just confused some of you, and all I can say to you is go through um, Chick-fil-A, get a milkshake, and sleep it off. Just... Just sleep it off. Um, uh, I would say 95% of Christians in the world don't even know the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, and they're happy and, and love Jesus and are going to heaven. So just sleep it off. But I'm saying, I, I do know that we have theological students. We have uh, guys and gals going to CIU, and I know, that, I know that that is an issue with some folks. So I want to talk about the sovereignty of God. I will say this. In most Christian circles, I think we, we treat the sovereignty of God philosophically instead of theologically. Because theologically, you cannot explain everything about the sovereignty of God. It's sort of like baseball. There are two cardinal rules. If you're really a baseball fan, you know there are two rules that cannot be broken. They cannot be broken if you're a true baseball fan. Number one is that good pitching always beats good hitting. Always. The second thing about baseball, you know that good hitting always beats good pitching. <laughs> and, and they are true. They cannot be broken. Those are the two absolute truths of baseball. Now, let me repeat them for you. Good pitching always beats good hitting. And the second one is good hitting always beats good pitching. Um, you say, well, how can that be? Well, it's this wonderful thing called baseball. And it works out in the end year after year after year after year after year after year after year. Now, that's a poor illustration of the sovereignty of God. But... You, I guarantee you, you're going to get in trouble and you're going to, it's going to break down. It's going to break down if you try to get all the answers about sovereignty. It's a mystery. We're describing the elemental nature of God, and yet we figured out that we have to have an answer to every jot and tittle on the page when it comes to something like God. Can't be done. Okay, um, let's talk a minute about the sovereignty of God. He never, uh, I, I want going back to the story, he never tests us to gain knowledge for himself. When God said, now I know, it, it was a Hebraism. It, it, it's in the same class as we talked about a few weeks ago. God hardened Pharaoh's heart 
God hardened so-and-so's heart. It's not that God hardens the heart. It's that at the end of the day, when all is said and done, the man's heart was hardened ultimately because of God, his response to God. That's the way the sovereignty of God works. He never tests us to gain knowledge for himself. Whenever we are tested and we, the results of the test are in, look at your notes, this is it. He, he has tested us to show us what we are or he will test us to reveal his grace to others through us. So when God says, now I know, it's in our English instead of a cyclical, circular Hebrew mindset, in a, in a linear Western mindset that goes from here to here to here to here, you know, a Hebrew mindset goes like this. It goes back and revisits, and it goes forward, then it goes high, and then it goes low. But all the time it's moving toward the end to a conclusion. The best way I know how to describe it, boy, I've got to hurry, Justin, I told you not to let me get bogged down here. Or maybe I thought I did. Well, in the sovereignty of God, you should have known either way. But uh, it's like when you listen, or it's not like that much anymore, but in the, in the golden age of Hollywood, you know, in the 40s and 50s, when they would play a musical, or play, a, yeah, the musical score of a movie, if you, if you listen to the opening score of the movie, you hear a melody um, that is, that is a... Uh, a combination of probably five or six songs that you're going to hear in the movie. And, and it'll go back and forth. You'll hear this song with this song, back to this song with this song, to that song, to back over to this song. And, and we just don't think of it. We're reading the opening credits. We're trying to get it. But what we're doing is if we'll listen, we're hearing a taste of the, of the, the score of the movie that's to come. That's, a, that's the way a Hebrew mindset operates. It's not linear, it's cyclical. And we're weaving in and out and up and down. And this happened, but God is superintending it. And this happened, but it's my response to God. We have a Western mindset where we say, I like this song. You know, the song where they got run over by the car. I love that song. And then you go on a few more minutes till they're in the hospital. I love that song. Then he wakes up and they fall in love. I love that song. We think of linear songs. That's track one on the, on the CD. That's track two. That's track three. We think linear. A Hebrew mind is this great, it's not confusing to, to a Hebrew mind, but it is different than the way we think. That's what we're looking at here. When God says, now I know what he's saying is Abraham, everybody looking on will now know that I have declared this about you. Okay. Um, the sovereignty of God, the letter D on your outline, does not imply or teach that God decreed or ordained everything that has come to pass. The sovereignty of God does not teach that everything that happened, God ordained that it happened. It doesn't teach that. It teaches that God is in control of everything. And in that sense, things that are unpleasant can be called the will of God. You say, then God ordained me to lose my baby? No. But God is superintending the event so that even in the tragedy of a loss like that, God is making all things work together for good. It, you say, I, that, I, don't, I don't understand that. Well, it's because we're human. And it's beyond our ability to understand. It's something that we trust long before we understand it. Um, and I'm not trying to sound like I understand it. I'm, the main thing I understand about the mystery of God is that it's a mystery and I don't understand it. But I, I feel like I'm frustrating some of you and I don't mean to do that. Now, talking about the sovereignty of God, it's the biblical teaching. This is letter E, number one on your outline. It's the biblical teaching that God is all powerful and everything is under his control. There's a real popular theological maxim that's out there today. It says something like this, God is in control, but God's not in charge. And I understand what they're trying to say. They're trying to resolve the unresolvable. They're trying to say God's overall, but God's not in charge of everything that's happening. I want to tell you, God is in charge of everything. It, but that does not mean, that does not mean that God has 
spoken and said, this ought to happen. I mean, how could, how could God punish us for our sin if he's making us sin? How, you know, it, it, it breaks down and you've got to understand um, he's not only overall, but he's in charge. He hates some things that happen, but he's so overall and he's so in charge that the worst possible thing that can happen to you or me, the worst possible thing that you or I can do, God is never loses control and he's making everything work together for good. But we've got to get to the end. We've got to get to the end. Um, the sovereignty of God is the understanding that God has the absolute right, the full authority, and full power to do or allow anything he desires. Okay? Um, we get in trouble when we start saying that's not fair, that's not good. Uh, we get in trouble because we're walking into the trap of Romans 1 that says we're going to remake God into a you know, God 2.0 that we agree with or that's more palatable to us or a God we can, we can justify. You'll never be able to do that. That is at the heart of man's rebellion is a rejection of God's absolute sovereignty, who he is and what he does. Now you say, well, I just can't believe God would be behind something bad. If you think God is behind something bad, you're yet to understand the sovereignty of God. Okay. Oh, I'm giving myself a headache. Um, sovereignty of God implies that his actions may not be comprehended fully or accurately by any other being. A at the end of the most intense Bible study, we may come to the conclusion that we don't understand some of God's actions. But loved ones, we're talking about God. We don't have to understand. And I know I've been in theology long enough to understand that we, we theologians are not happy, and a lot of Christians are, in general are not happy until we've got every line filled in right. and, and every essay answer uh, question answered. And some of them are blank. Uh, now, when we get to heaven, it will be amazingly simple. I, I've always said, the first thing we'll say when we get to heaven is, oh... Oh, okay. My dad, boy, he, he waited till every one of them. And then the, the, I, I was the last kid, so everybody knew the answer but me. My dad used to pose this question, this riddle of life on our journeys. He said, now son, I want to ask you something. He said, if you had to, you absolutely had to, but you really didn't want to, what would you do? And I try to reach back into third grade philosophy and I, I try to explain, well, I, I wouldn't do it if I didn't want to. He said, well, if, but you had to. You absolutely had to. What would you do? And after we talk 45 minutes about dealing with all these difficult things, and then everybody in the car grins, as my dad said, if you had to and really didn't want to, what would you do? And he smiles and says, give one away. Yeah, it's, you get it. See, I was stumbling over the, 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 the verities of life, but I had the wrong two. My dad was talking TWO, I'm talking uh, the other two, and we couldn't even, I, I, I said, this is not answerable. I was so frustrated. give one away. Well, when we get to heaven, everything will be plain. But I guarantee you, as you walk through life, you're going to have a lot of blanks. You're going to have a lot of unanswerables. Okay. Uh, further thoughts about sovereignty? And guys, forgive me, I just, I think this is a bigger deal than we realize. The idea of free will is not inconsistent with sovereignty. Some people who believe in the sovereignty of God say that there's no such thing as truly free will. And others say, well, yeah, there is free will, but, and, and they make it all convoluted and very difficult to deal with. But the idea of free will is not inconsistent with sovereignty. The sovereignty of God grants free will to mankind. Okay. Um, now RT doesn't believe this, for example, but, but a strict Calvinist believes that Jesus died only for the elect and if you're not elect, Jesus didn't die for you. 
Now, again, RT doesn't believe that, but we believe that God died, that Jesus died for everyone. And, and um, whether or not we go to heaven is dependent on our reception of his gift. I, I had a professor say to me one time, well, if Jesus died for everyone and somebody rejects it, that means Jesus died in vain. I said to myself, I mean, I, 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 my grade wasn't in, so I wasn't going to answer him, but I thought that's what makes rejection of Jesus so serious. It does make his death in vain for that person, but not in the, not in the big, big, uh, big picture. Um, we do not believe in double predestination. Uh, we don't believe that one is predestined to heaven and one is predestined to hell. We in our church believe that what predestination is about is God has made a determination. When you become a Christian, God says right then all of heaven begins to work to get you there. And that's what you're predestined to. Okay. Um, and we do not believe that the rejection of the gospel by man destroys God's sovereignty. Now let's talk about the nature of the final exam. I spent more time on that than I wanted to because Justin didn't help me. Um, the nature of final exam. Now it tends to be comprehensive. Not always. I always love final exams where they just say a final exam is going to be just on the last two weeks of lectures. But most of the time a final exam is over the whole series. Over the whole class. And I find... This is not an exact science, but I find that the older we get, the more the tests that we face seem to require us to draw back on all of life. Um, it tends to focus on relationship, not formulas. It's in the final exams that you begin to say things like this, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Um, it's in the final uh, exams after you've walked with God, that you put all of your conclusions together and you say things like this, we believe that God is able to save us. And we believe that God will save us. But if he doesn't save us, we still will not bow down to your image and worship. Okay, so you draw these, these relationship conclusions, not formulas. Final exams tend to settle faith, not necessarily give answers. Um, oh, let's save it for another lesson. Letter D, final exams tend to help us understand God's deeper purposes in our lives. God has made this promise of blessing the world through his son at least three times. But now because he passes this final exam, it's like God says, I'm going to say it one more time. I'm going to say it one more time. This is what I've been working with all your life. You've heard it several times, Abraham, but now I'm going to say it to you one more time. And it may be that for the first time in his life, all the ramifications settled in his heart. Don't be afraid if God repeats his promise to you because usually when he does it, there's a greater depth of understanding. I, I tell you, when, when Ramona and I started dating and first time she said, I love you, boy, it was, it was wonderful. It made my heart and my gizzard feel good. I was so happy to know that she loved me. But when she stood in front of all those people in the wedding and said, I, I love you and I promise... It, it meant more than it did that night at Shakey's Pizza, you know. And every trial, whenever it ends up, I love you or I'm proud of you, I think it means more than it did the time before. That's the kind of thing that's going on here with Abraham. Um, and final exam aren't necessarily the final things, but they generally appear later in life. Now, when you have what you think is the final exam, don't think, well, it's time for me to go to heaven. Because Abraham, Abraham raised a whole nother family after this. But, and he lived to be 175. We, when we meet him, he's 75. So, he, I mean, this journey takes 100 years. You say, oh, pastor, I'm not up to that. Don't worry, it's probably not, not, not going to be the way God deals with us. Um, but generally, you don't get a final exam in your 20s or 30s. It's usually later on. Um, and as I said, we still see a lot 
ahead in his life. Um, let me talk about intimacy and then we're going to wrap it up with the Christian life lessons and I need to hurry. Intimacy is something that we need to understand as well as sovereignty. Intimacy is a delicate skill. If we're going to manage it, that's a poor, poorly written sentence. But if, if we're able to manage intimacy, we've got to understand that it's a delicate skill to manage. Intimacy um, is tied to the word jealousy. We don't think of jealousy as a good thing. Like uh, uh, when somebody's looking for a spouse, you, the, the, you know, your parents never tell you, and you want somebody that's jealous. Get somebody that's jealous. Because we only think of jealousy in its negative connotation. But I want to tell you, jealousy has a very special positive connotation. Now, the Bible makes it clear that unjust jealousy or untrue jealousy is, is a cruelty. It can make someone's life miserable. But one of God's names is Jehovah Kana, God the jealous one. You say, well, how can jealousy be good? Well, when you understand it through intimacy, let's, let's use husband and wife for the example of intimacy. The husband and wife are to live in intimacy. That's what the phrase, they were naked and not ashamed, meant. It wasn't just talking about a sexual union. It was, it was, it was talking about their life was lived and open. They had an intimacy that, they, that made everything about their relationship better. Now, let me tell you this. This proper kind of intimacy doesn't forbid other relationships. You know, it, a, a husband doesn't have the right to tell his wife, you can't have friends. You can't have, you know, hiking buddies. You can't have friends at work. You can't, you can't like the neighbor. You can't, you, can't, you can't tell your wife she can't have friends. But you do have the right to say this. You can have friends, but nobody can be in the same place as me in your life. That's what intimacy with God is. You know, and a lot of people think they've reached spiritual maturity if they say, I don't need anybody. I just need Jesus. Oh, that's, that's heresy. That's false. God's already said it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for you to be alone. And you are not designed to be alone. And you need other relationships in your life. But I'll tell you this, there must be no relationship in your life like your relationship with God. See, your wife can have friends, but she can't have lovers. Your husband can have buddies, but he can't have mistresses, okay? There's no relationship like your relationship with your husband or your wife. You have other relationships. You have a relationship with your children, but it's not a sexual relationship. You have a relationship with your neighbors, but it can't be a sexual uh, sharing our life on that level kind of a, a relationship. And if it happens, then jealousy is perfectly right, Okay? Intimacy doesn't forbid other relationships, but there's none above it. Okay, I, you know, you, your husband has the right to his friends. You have the right to your friends, work associates, all that. And there's a place for that. But at the end of the day, nothing rises to the level of that intimate relationship. There's improper jealousy, but there's also a legitimate right to jealousy. The trick is to be a wise steward of that emotion. Um, you say, you see, we, we've made a mistake. We've, we've not understood the depth of God's love because we say that certain things are wrong when they're not necessarily wrong. You know, like vengeance. I grew up being taught, you know, don't ever, don't ever get in, don't ever get even. Don't, don't say I'm going to get vengeance. You know, I'm not going to get revenge because that's evil. I read the scripture and what I read about revenge and vengeance is that it is so special. God says, I'm the only one that can handle it. Whoa, well, can I help you? <laughs> no, revenge and vengeance is not evil. It is such a powerful, satisfying thing. It is so intoxicating that only God can handle vengeance. Only God can handle it. Same thing with intimacy. You can, you can have relationships, but, but uh, the relationship between husband and wife is so powerful and so special, God says, on no terms can anyone else share in that relationship. 
You say, well, I, I, I don't know that I would mess it up that bad. Well, I'll tell this for the new folks. I know all you regulars know it. Lady was going through the trial of her life. Her husband had left her and three kids to raise on her own. And he had left town with his, you know, a co-worker from the office. And this woman was devastated. And her guardian angel went to the Lord and said, God, this ain't fair. This man is such a jerk. He has taken everything. Those children are destitute. The woman's heart is broken. God, I just, I just don't believe that this is right. And God says, it's not right, but I'm testing her. I'm refining her. And the angel says, I don't like that. That's just not fair. The Lord says, you think you can handle it better? He said, if I can prove to you, Lord, that there's no vengeance in her heart, will you be okay? He said, if you can prove there's no vengeance in her heart, you go for it. So the angel appears to the woman with fanfare and wings and fire and all. And she is, he says, I'm your guardian angel. And the Lord has sent to me. He recognizes your trouble. And this is what God says. He will give you three wishes, whatever you want, as long as you give wishes that do not reflect animosity toward your husband. And the way we'll do that is whatever you ask for, whatever you get double is what your husband will get. She said, okay. The angel says, all right. What's your first wish? She says, give me a million dollars in small unmarked bills. He says, I can do that, but you understand your husband will suddenly have $2 million. Yes, I, I understand. So she suddenly has a million dollars appear in front of her and Across town, her husband in the arms of his mistress sees $2 million appear on the kitchen table. And he says, are you all right with that? And she says, the name of the Lord be praised. And the angel looks at God. And he says, okay, what is your second wish? She said, well, we're living in this little 900 square foot cramped apartment. I, I want a 3,000 square foot house paid for. And he said, I can do it, but your husband's going to get a, a, a 6,000 square foot house. She said, I don't care. The name of the Lord be praised. She gets her big house. The husband gets a house twice as magnificent. And the, the angel kind of looks toward heaven and says, you see, she, her heart is pure. The Lord, he says, now what is your third wish? But remember, whatever I give you, your husband will receive double she put her hands on her money and looked at her house and she says, I would like for you now to scare me half to death. <laughs> yeah. And the angel at that point stopped trying to run the kingdom of God. Now, I want to say this. There are places that God will take you and just you. That's why I know it's always been hard on me. It's been hard for me to accept. But sometimes the Lord will actually move friends out of my life. And I've got to be careful that I don't get mad at them for not being there for me. But what, I've, what I have to remember is that God's about to take me on a path that is only me and him. Okay, here are the Christian life lessons. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, it's time for us to go, but let me just give you this. Justin's already led us in prayer, so we're ready. Revelation only comes when we determine to sanctify special moments with God. Um, your spouse is your soulmate, your church is your support group, and your spiritual family. But there will be times that it's just you and God. And nobody else will understand. It's at those times that the phone won't be answered or email or text messages will be missed. And you'll go through the battle of thinking, my friends have deserted me and all God has done is just scooted them out of the way. They're going to come right back in. They don't even know what you're going through. But they've been just scooted out of the way. And because God says, this is one you got to win with me. And that's why Abraham wasn't even allowed to take Sarah. Can you imagine him putting Isaac on the altar with Sarah there? No, it was him, him and God. Um, letter B, you may find that no one is permitted to travel certain paths with you. Um, you may find that 
there are some paths you travel with a special friend or God in his wisdom and grace. You know, the Lord told Jeremiah that uh, when he started his mission, he said, you're not going to marry because the, the mission I'm giving you is too tough for a married man. It wouldn't be fair to a wife. And Jeremiah was broken over that, but he said, I'll tell you what I will do. I will give you a friend that will fill. Now he's not going to be as a wife. I know that, but he will fill a place in your heart. Baruch, the scribe went with him. Letter C, you may find that no one's willing to walk with you down certain paths. But I guarantee you the last thing you'll find is that God is forever faithful. God is forever faithful. I think we can say this. Everything that God had spent um, the last 25 years, well, more than that now, um, probably 25, 35, probably closer to 40, 45 years teaching Abraham. Now it's like every lesson comes together in one setting and the victory's complete. The final exam is taken. Um, you say, well, pastor, when, when will the final exam come in my life? I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've already had two or three things that I thought were final exams and, and probably you have too. And, and you know what? Sometimes you have more than one final exam, but it's moments when God is tying everything together. It's a moment when you leave your legacy. It's a moment when you look back and you, you begin to understand if, if heaven was never promised to me, this life has been worth living just having him in it. Okay. One more lesson and that'll fix us up on, uh, on Abraham. Justin, would you come and dismiss us in prayer tonight? I love you guys so much. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I know we've spoken to the church, but if you're here and you want to give your heart to the Lord, please get with somebody uh, or one of the pastors, one of the prayer ministry teams, let them know you want Jesus. Okay. Bless you. <laughs>